The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. The most unremarkable of events. Jerome Morrow, navigator first class, is about to go on a one-year manned mission to Titan. The 14th moon of Saturn. A highly prestigious assignment, although for Jerome, selection was virtually guaranteed at birth. He's blessed with all the gifts required for such an undertaking. A genetic quotient second to none. No, there is truly nothing remarkable about the progress of Jerome Morrow. Except that I am not Jerome Morrow. I was conceived in the Riviera. Not the French Riviera. The Detroit variety. They used to say that a child conceived in love has a greater chance of happiness. They don't say that anymore. I'll never understand what possessed my mother to put her faith in God's hands rather than those of her local geneticist. Ten fingers, ten toes, that's all that used to matter. Not now. Now, only seconds old, the exact time and cause of my death was already known. Neurological condition, 60% probability. Manic depression, 42% probability. Attention deficit disorder, 89% probability. Heart disorder, 99% probability. Early fatal potential. Life expectancy, 30.2 years. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, November 25th, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. And welcome to the show today. We're 519-661-3600 is always a number to call. If you want to join in on the conversation or leave a message with our operator on anything you'd like to know or hear about on, on, about on the show, you can also write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And of course, visit our website, www.justrightmedia.org, for an archive of all of our past broadcasts. If you couldn't tell from the opening clip today, which was uh, actually from the movie Gattaca, we're going to be discussing the science, the politics, and the philosophy of eugenics. Something I never even considered until the weekend, Robert. Yes, nor I. No, but, you know, if you tuned in to last week's show, uh, you know that we asked the question, Tommy Douglas, hero or villain, in the context of his reputation as the father of Medicare in Canada. My conclusion, of course, was that Tommy Douglas was a villain, but over the weekend, I ran into a few people who were surprised that I did not mention the fact that Tommy Douglas was, a, quote, a supporter of eugenics, end quote. You've heard that before, eh, Robert? Only again when I research Tommy Douglas. Whenever it comes up, yes. Or, or when you research eugenics in general, his name will come up. Yes. Yes. And uh, this was in his earlier days. And I said, how come you didn't mention it? You know, didn't you know about his rep as a eugenics supporter? 
So I thought I'd just take a moment, Robert, just to expand my brief response to them. Yes, I did know about his flirting with these eugenics ideas. However, my purpose was not character assassination, okay? It was ideas assassination and the ideas and principles behind our socialized Medicare system, which I thought were bad enough, didn't need to bring up eugenics, right? So to make my argument credible, I chose not to take pot shots at the messenger, but to take direct shots at the philosophy that so wrongly drives and motivates our entire healthcare system. Got a lot of response to that show, too. So I decided to confine myself to the immediate subject at hand, despite what the topic, hero or villain, might literally suggest. It was not Tommy Douglas, the man, that I was speaking out against. It was Tommy Douglas, the symbol of socialized medicine that I was targeting. And... So, you know, I, I just didn't want to spoil my own argument on socialized medicine by bringing in another issue. You know, I, yeah. I, I'd have to agree with you there. I mean, for example, Thomas Jefferson was a great man, yet he kept slaves. There were many people who, who you know, look at, look at this list. He, if we're going to pick on him for that. By the way, I didn't even really know what eugenics was. I still don't in the strictest sense because I think part of today's discussion is going to be the definition itself and what it implies. And, and there, are, there are more than one definition of this word. But, I mean, if you want to look at uh, the people who are included in, you know, in the whole idea of um, eugenics, you hear people like Sir Francis Galton, Charles Darwin, Marie Stopes, H.G. Wells, Theodore Roosevelt, George Bernard Shaw, John Maynard Keynes, John Harvey Kellogg, etc., etc. And it's, of course, its most infamous proponent and practitioner was, however, Adolf Hitler who praised and incorporated eugenic ideas in Mein Kampf and emulated eugenic legislation for the sterilization of defectives that had been pioneered, interestingly enough, in the United States. I thought he got the idea from FDR, actually. Yeah. I think he sent him a letter thanking him for the, uh, the notion. Which, you know, I remember doing a whole show on, on America's early fascist period, you know, which led into the whole world war. But what's interesting, what do you, what do you notice is the commonality ab among most of those people? They're all left-wing. They're all left-wing, they're all socialists. They're all liberal. Why is that connection there? That's something we'll be looking at later on. You know, but even so, it seems to me at least an observable fact that some people, who we might call inconsistent or confused on some issues, they might be wacko on some ideas and issues, and they can express genius when related to other issues. And that's why I don't like picking on the messenger as much as the message itself. Um, we can find weaknesses in all kinds of people, probably ourselves too. So, you know, don't judge the, messen the message by the messenger in all cases. In some cases, you must, of course. But I never uh, cease to be amazed by how many outstanding people in their fields of medicine, science, physics, philosophy, even politics have really no idea whatever about politics and philosophy, which, which are important to the fields in which they are endeavoring to work. So if we're simply to dismiss a valuable idea or a truth or a reality uh, just on the basis of who says it, I think that's a bit of an injustice. A but, bit of one, but it's not totally unfair no. to criticize a person's uh, belief system or philosophy in other realms, just not the one that you're talking about. So did you want to start off with your attempt at defining this whole thing of eugenics? And well, you know something, Bob? When I got into the, uh, mm -hmm. into the subject, it became such a broad area yeah, of sure. not just simply eugenics, which is uh, more or less a sterilization of uh, certain people. It became uh, an investigation into all of reproductive choice and sexuality and genetics and, again, eugenics. But 
I'd like to start off by just putting it into perspective. Like part of what makes us human is our ability to manipulate nature, to carve a wheel out of stone, to fashion clothes from plants and animals, to build shelter from mud, rock and trees, to use the black goo of tar and oil to transport us around the world or send a rocket to the moon. Why then do we balk at the idea of manipulating that part of nature we are most familiar with, ourselves? Manipulating our genetic code or using science to improve our offspring is natural. It's a natural consequence of what makes us human. It's reasonable, whether it's the ability to select the gender of our children, which we can do, to clone ourselves, which we cannot yet do, to eliminate genetic diseases, which we're considering and experimenting on, to prevent pregnancy or birth, or to allow for pregnancy when it would normally be impossible. These things are no different in essence from turning a pile of rock into an automobile or a cell phone. It is the manipulation of nature to suit our needs and our desires. Now, eugenics has been described as, now here's your definition, self-directed human evolution. It is action. I never ran into that one in all my mm -hmm. definitions. That, I think that that's came not from one a, I ran into. came from, I think, the second meeting of um, eugenics conference or something like that way back many, many years ago, many decades. Uh, it is actions aimed at improving the genetic makeup of our offspring. Now imagine if we could prevent or pre-select the genetic makeup of our children as, as was done in the movie Gattaca, the clip that you just heard from. Imagine eliminating any chance of passing on any of the genetic diseases or even inadequacies of your own makeup. Getting rid of, for example, myopia, and premature balding would be nice. I'm speaking personally here, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but the benefit of being able to get rid of diseases like Down syndrome, hemophilia, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or Huntington's disease would be immeasurable, not only to our children, but to ourselves and to society as a whole. So why do we include, like to, to me that just sounds like individual fields of medicine into which we delve could be one particular branch dealing with one organ of the body or whatever. Why is that all lumped into this big title, eugenics? I think what, what, what I'm about to go on about mm -hmm. is the, the introduction of the use of force. Ah, okay. And government okay. and state. I'm going to leave you alone for so a minute. So <laughs> think about that when, when we mm -hmm. talk about the rest of eugenics uh, this hour. Mm -hmm. So the general impression of the population today is that eugenics is evil. This um, it is, depending on how it's defined. Exactly. It's all about, it's all about definition. That's well, why I don't think we can avoid that definition It's game not today. just all about definition. I think, well, the definition is benign, if you look at it. Uh, improving your offspring, you know, self-directed evolution, not necessarily by itself evil. It no, is, I, I, would, I would refer to this process as self-directed human evolution, not yeah. as genetics, or, or sorry, as eugenics, because that has a historic reference now. I think the word has been usurped. Oh, in a way. you must tell us about that but, later but, yeah, on. Yeah. Okay. But uh, the attitude, it's a misuse. Actually, mm -hmm. I've got it right here, Bob. It's okay. a misuse, it's a misuse of, of eugenics by social engineers, demagogues, and dictators, such mm -hmm. as, as you mentioned, Adolf Hitler, John Maynard Keynes, here's some more, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and the CBC's greatest Canadian, Tommy Douglas. All of these, and I'm going to have to say it, evil people, including Tommy Douglas, advocated the forced sterilization of one or more of such groups of people as the feeble-minded, 
Now, by the way, these terms that I'm about to describe are back from the 1940s, 1930s, 1920s. Mm -hmm. So these were actually common used terms. And they back were used then. universally by all of these people, not yeah. just the, the handful. They weren't you necessarily mentioned. used pejoratively. No. So feeble-minded, blacks, Jews, epileptics, defectives, imbeciles, lunatics, and idiots. All of these wow. people have done almost irreparable harm to the study of human genetics and sexual reproduction. The difference between a person wishing to genetically improve his own personal offspring and of uh, Tommy Dulcus or an FDR wanting to improve the race of man by sterilizing imbeciles is force. A government has no right to use force to sterilize anyone, to clone anyone, if such a thing were possible, or to attempt to alter the genetic makeup of society through family planning schemes. That, by the way, Bob, is a whole other area of what I would consider part of the eugenic argument mm -hmm. is, for example, introducing birth control into other nations or introducing family planning into other, other nations or things, of, things that our countries or other countries do to other countries to basically change their population. That's eugenics as well. It's just simply not a proper function of government or the state to meddle in eugenics or sexual choice. Now, unfortunately, the history of Nazi Germany or of the forced sterilization program of Alberta has permeated the topic of eugenics and has stifled debate. The truth is that genetic manipulation may very well be moral and desirable, but only if it is the decision of individuals and not the state. Now, I'm going to digress here for a little bit, Bob, because mm -hmm. I only just discovered this, I think it's this morning. Alberta's eugenics program. A lot of people out there, if you're not from Alberta, um, may not have realized, but Alberta and British Columbia, but Alberta especially, had a eugenics board. And it came into being in 1928 and wasn't disbanded until 1972. My goodness. Yes. And there was a board of four individual people, not accountable to the legislator, not accountable to, the, to any sort of oversight, who... Uh, through the Sexual Sterilization Act, were able to sterilize 2,832 Albertans. You know now, what now, if they weren't accountable, where did they get their authority from? Uh, from that act and the government. But so the government it was basically, a state authority? Yes, but the government were, left them alone. Okay. Know, like a lot of the mm -hmm. regulatory bodies we have here today. Yeah, we call them crown corporations. I find it ironic, <laughs> actually, that <yeah>. the <laughs> chair of the Eugenics Board of Alberta was a philosopher. Mm -hmm. He was a philosopher and a professor uh, at the University of Alberta. Doesn't surprise me in the least. And Oh, man, i got so much to say about that, but uh, carry on. That was Dr. McEachern. Mm -hmm. um, and the criteria that they used, now amongst other things like uh, medical history, which you would think would be important, IQ testing, criminal records, ethnicity, religion, and age were all factors that they considered before they decided whether or not to sterilize somebody and prevent them from passing on their bad genes. Hmm. And? That's it. I think we're just at the quarter of the hour. Okay, here. well, let's take a break here. This is from uh, Gattaca. But by the way, you told me something about the name of the movie, which I did not know, the letters in the movie. What do they represent again? Oh, God, I hope you weren't going to ask oh, me that. Uh, <laughs> but they I, were... You know, I did take a couple of courses of genetics they had, in university. They had something but, to do with the genome. Yeah, it, the, the genome. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, a four, uh, what are they, nucleotides, uh, guanine, four, adenine, thysine, That's thymine, what you said, or, four nucleide sequences, I think. Yeah, something said. like that. Um, and and so they just they rearranged made a word the letter. out of it. Yeah, they rearranged uh, the letters to make a word.
Well, here's another scene from that film. I think that I, th I wonder if it's films like that that have led to a lot of our fear of this whole area of science as well. Oh, I think so. Because in all of them, it wasn't about the science; it was about the politics. When and we the come society, back, which, when, yeah, yeah. When we come back from the break, I'll talk exactly on that point. Okay. From an early age, I came to think of Vincent. myself as others thought of me. Vincent. Chronically Vincent. ill. Every skinned knee and runny nose was treated as if it were life-threatening. I'm sorry, the insurance won't cover it. If he fell... But I was told that everything was... I real. really wish there was something I could do. Like most other parents of their day, they were determined that their next child would be brought into the world in what has become the natural way. Your extracted eggs, uh, Marie have been fertilized with Antonio's sperm. After screening, we are left, as you see, with two healthy boys and two very healthy girls. Naturally, no critical predispositions to any of the major inheritable diseases. All that remains is to select the most compatible candidate. First, we, we may as well decide on gender. Have you given it any thought? Uh, we would want Vincent to have a brother, you know, um, to play with. Of course you would. Hello, Vincent. You have specified hazel eyes, dark hair, and uh, fair skin. I have taken the liberty of eradicating any potentially prejudicial conditions, uh, premature baldness, myopia, alcoholism, and addictive susceptibility, uh, propensity for violence, obesity, etc. We didn't want, I mean, diseases, yes, but... Uh... Right, we were just wondering if, if it's good to just leave a few things to, to chance. You want to give your child the best possible start. Believe me, we have enough imperfection built in already. No, your child doesn't need any additional burdens. And keep in mind, this child is still you. Simply the best of you. You could conceive naturally a thousand times and never get such a result. the idea that you're the clever one. You're nowhere near as clever as you think. Well, neither are you. Ah, ah, yes, but at least I know I'm not. What? You know you're not as clever as you think? Yes, unlike you. So how clever do you think you are? Very clever. And how clever do you know you are, really? Well, less clever than that. You've laid some kind of trap. So, to recap, what's good about you, as opposed to me, is that you know you're several degrees less clever than you think you are, and that's somehow morally healthy, whereas my opinion of my own intelligence, as flawed an evaluation as anyone's is likely to be, is deemed unreliable because of its, albeit subjective, consistency. You do see why you never get laid, don't you? <laughs> Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you're uh, listening to Robert Vaughn and Bob Metz. And you can call in and join the conversation at 519-661-3600. And uh, that was a little clip from Mitchell and Webb, who I really like. I, I uh, found it interesting they were talking about how he knows he's not a certain <laughs> way, right? And, and isn't that, don't you think that, in a way, a lot of this has to do with the more physics belief in determinism? Because I see that everywhere, even in the opening clip. They said, they knew the exact time of my death, right? Oh, yes. That yeah. is simply not knowable. I'm yeah. sorry. 
And, and I think what they were trying to say is that given the fact that he may not be hit by a truck tomorrow, he could probably have a heart attack at the age of 32 or whatever well, it was. Yes. And, and there's a whole issue of, of uh, randomness versus choice all the time yeah. when it's brought up in this issue. You and I are going to have a nice long talk about this. Well, we're go- we, we had a... Oh, we, I'm glad you said talk. Usually you would have said argument <laughs> because we went at it this week on some definitions with regard to this whole issue. Yeah. And but, you know, I often wondered if choice is determined, then anything we choose would also be random because it's determined. <laughs> I knew you were <laughs> right? going to say that. You know, you did? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so what difference does it make to the gene pool, whether it's random or choice? It strikes me a lot of, isn't there an argument to be made that when people prefer randomness to choice, not in the ex- second example we got there, they they, they wanted choice in, in the physical, in, in, you know, in terms of making sure the child wasn't ill or something like that. That makes sense. Yes. But if that were to be left to randomness, then wouldn't that be almost an abdication of responsibility when you have a choice? Oh, yes, indeed. I mean, if you flip a coin... to me, that's a profound issue. If you flip a coin and if it lands heads, your child becomes a Down syndrome baby, I mean, that's the height of irresponsibility. Yes, and that's what concerns me about a lot of what's being said here. Mm -hmm. And... um, but you were going to carry on there. Well, yeah, just before the break, that. we were talking about how government has uh, sullied the entire debate. And I think that with our advances in understanding of genetics and of governments, we have to re-examine the entire notion of eugenics. We now have the power as individuals to control whether or not a woman can conceive or not, whether she can carry a baby to term or abort the pregnancy. We have the ability, albeit limited, to pre-select the gender of our offspring by basically filtering the sperm used in impregnating an egg. We have the ability to conceive children out of the womb. Millions, by the way, of children have been born via in vitro fertilization. We have cloned animals, and one of these days we may have the ability to clone ourselves. There are the religious arguments against manipulating our offspring, of course, the old playing God bromide. To these people I say, if you disagree, then don't do it. You have a choice. Exercise it. But don't restrict the choices of those who do not necessarily share your beliefs. Do not run to government to use their their use of force on others who may disagree. There is the argument of unforeseen consequences. I hear this all the time. It's specious. Such an argument would have prevented... Well, the it applies to any choice, wouldn't it? It, uh, it does. Even the right choice, I mean. For example, an argument would have prevented the invention of the wheel. So sure, the wheel has crushed people underneath, <laughs> but without that wheel, where would we be? Quite literally. Mm-hmm. We must all be individually held responsible for our actions. If a woman employs in vitro fertilization to have a child, but, for example, as a result, conceives sex tuplets, then it is she and her husband who must pay the consequences, for good or ill in this case. Fictional renderings of people, here's where, here's where we get into what you were talking about before, Bob, fictional renderings of people like Angadica, who have been designed without disease or perhaps with enhanced IQs or better physical features, also seem to have measures of arrogance to match. Whether it is Khan Noonien Singh in Star Trek or the astronauts in Gattaca, genetically enhanced people are depicted as being overbearing and arrogant. They are given a holier-than-thou persona and exude superiority. Perhaps this is what is driving those opposed to genetic choice. Envy. Envy 
Bob, I think, is at the root of many of today's political problems. The anti-industrialists, the green movement, those opposed to consumerism, technology, advancements of any kind which could improve the human condition to give us control over nature or even convenience. Well, and that's interesting mm -hmm. because whatever changes we're talking about in this context wouldn't apply to the person that's making the change. That's what I find interesting. Um, if if any of this, these sciences actually affected us as living beings, but they don't, they affect future generations. That seems to me a critical definition point. It's not about you choosing for yourself. Even if it's voluntary, you're choosing for somebody else. Ah, but you're choosing for your own children True. who are you, you are responsible for as an individual. But, but what I'm saying is the benefit is long-term off. So where does the envy come in? It's not, it's not envy for the self ah, as such, is it? I'll get, I'll get to that. Oh, okay. Actually, there's a very clear oh, distinction okay. of why it's envious. Envy is one of the motivations driving many who are opposed to the discussion of genetically enhanced children. Now, I've discussed the, uh, this argument on a previous show where I labeled it as hatred of the good mm -hmm. for being the good, an observation from Ayn Rand. Many of the procedures either available to us, to us today or potentially available in the future may only be affordable to the rich. This upsets some people, makes them envious. Not the poor, per se, but the egalitarians, many of whom are rich. It would be consistent for egalitarians like the uh, late and great, so-called Tommy Douglas, to rather than make a, a new option, choice, or procedure available to all, deny it to the rich by denying it to all. We've seen this all the time. Ignorance. Well, that's socialized medicine, isn't it? That's socialized we, medicine, we deny, yeah. we deny medicine to all kinds of people who could otherwise afford it. I think a lot of it comes from envy. Yeah, it does. Yeah, envy. I see, I see your point exactly. Yeah. The rich can afford some really good health care, and because the egalitarians don't like that, they deny health care to all equally. Now, ignorance is also at the heart of the rebellion against most modern advancements. Because of ignorance, we have people like those in the Sierra Club protesting the shipment of the Bruce nuclear power plant spent steam generators to Sweden for recycling. If you've been following that story in the London Free Press, just mention the word radiation and the ignorant are up in arms. Regardless of how little radiation there is or how harmless it is, likewise, a general ignorance over genetically modified foods as people boycotting products and companies who sell them, even though they may be perfectly harmless or offer great benefit, for example, in increased crop yields. It's pure ignorance that's driving that. Religion, envy, <clears throat> ignorance. These are the recurring arguments against anything which might make our lives survivable or comfortable. The hysteria against all, the, all things genetic like stem cell research, like I read in today's London Free Press. Again, I'll just pull that up here. It's just mm -hmm. quoting from the Free Press. Embryonic cell stem research has been controversial because some people believe the destruction of any human embryo is wrong. Genetic determination abortions. Another thing, birth control. That was very controversial. Cloning. That will be controversial. In vitro fertilization is no different than the usual in vitro fertilization, by the way, was very controversial when, uh, who was it? Louise Brown was the very first uh, person born out of, uh, out of the womb. Well, uh, born, or I should say, fertilized mm -hmm. in vitro. Or in vitro means uh, within glass, by the way. Is that literally <laughs> what it means? Yeah, test within tube, glass, yeah. Mm -hmm. Test tube, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that's no, 
all these things, no different than the usual ignorant rhetoric against other modern technological advancements like computing, cell phones, immunizations, nuclear-powered rockets or automobiles. There are the left lining up to give us arguments about why all these things are bad. And I'm willing to bet, Bob, that the brilliant person who first invented the wheel all those millennia ago was probably killed by his neighbors for being a pretentious smartass. <laughs> what do you think? I don't know. I know what you mean by that, by saying that. You know, at the bottom of all, the, all this, though, is, is a disturbing message to me. And that is that human behavior can be programmed and that it's not learned, which is the opposite of what I know things to be. And that's what I want to talk about mostly in the second half of the show. But I've got a little game for you here just before we break. Which of these would you include or not include under the topics of eugenics? You've mentioned a few already. Sex selection? Yes. Yes. Cloning? Yes. Sterilization? Yes. Liberal eugenics. I'm not even sure what that means. Yeah, you're going to have term. to describe that one. Yeah, you. I don't know what that means either, but it was in there. I think it's more of the modern form of eugenics. Uh, might be more voluntarism in it. I'm not sure. What about disease control? Uh, not necessarily. Like, flor genetic like disease fluoridation or no. flu shots? Uh, no. no. No, okay. No, uh, only genetic diseases mm -hmm. I would put under that. And stem cell research would be in there. Um, yes, only because it's an ancillary argument about the destruction of human embryos. Then what about abortion? Abortion is certainly not a form of affecting future genetic traits. It's almost a reverse eugenics, where before you would have sterilization. Now there's people against abortion who is basically forcing people to have offspring that w they would not normally want to have. It's funny you mention that, Trevor. It changes the population. Actually, <laughs> it's interesting you say, you call it reverse eugenics. Um, in uh, Wikipedia, they called it positive eugenics ah. versus negative eugenics. And positive eugenics is aimed at encouraging reproduction among the genetically advantaged, whereas negative eugenics is aimed at lowering fertility among the genetically disadvantaged. Ah. And already the terms advantage and disadvantage lend themselves open to such a, an array of definitions. So I guess you could say positive Nazism is pro-Aryan. <laughs> Negative Nazism is anti-Jew. Ah. <laughs> right? Of course, eugenics by any other name. Uh, th yes, that's right. Okay, how about um, uh, what, what we just did? About, okay, reproduction in general? That wouldn't be... Uh, anything to do with the changing of the population makeup which eventually would well, involve almost the any, changing any of our evolution. Well, almost any sort of tampering with nature in the sense of us taking control of anything would fall into that category. I think almost. so. Diet. Uh, well, how's diet to Well, that? I just, as I'm driving here, I'm, re I'm hearing on the radio that, you know, they're going to ban certain things being sold at McDonald's. We shouldn't have too much salt. We have to cut down on our fats because it's making our children obese. All of this is population and literally physical control of some sort not as direct mm -hmm. as we might see in some of these eugenics but things, i don't but think social it, engineering of a sort true and it's from the same kinds of people who oppose um uh, anything to do with sexual choice but i don't think it's classified as eugenics because it's not necessarily going to affect the uh, the makeup of the population and thereby uh, human evolution well, Robert, we're at the bottom of the hour now. We've got to take a quick break. We'll continue this conversation on the other side as we play with the question of, uh, is it science? Is it politics? And what about the organic versus the personal? We'll discuss all those after this. Listen, for God's sake, 
You gotta understand something. The only way that you'll see the inside of a spaceship is if you were cleaning it. My father was right. It didn't matter how much I lied on my resume. My real resume was in my cells. Why should anybody invest all that money to train me when there are a thousand other applicants with a far cleaner profile? Of course, it's illegal to discriminate. Genoism, it's called. But no one takes the law seriously. If you refuse to disclose, they can always take a sample from a door handle or a handshake, even the saliva on your application form. If in doubt, a legal drug test can just as easily become an illegal peek at your future in the company. is not what I expected of a 20th century man. I note he's making considerable use of our technical library. A common courtesy, Mr. Spark. He's going to spend the rest of his days in our time. It's only decent to help him catch up. Would you estimate him to be a product of selected breeding? There is that possibility, Captain. His age would be correct. In 1993, a group of these young supermen did seize power simultaneously in over 40 nations. Well, they were hardly supermen. They were aggressive, arrogant, they began to battle among themselves. Because the scientists overlooked one fact. Superior ability breeds superior ambition. Interesting, if true. They created a group of Alexanders, Napoleon. I've collected some names and made some counts. By my estimate, there were some 80 or 90 of these young supermen unaccounted for when they were finally defeated. That fact isn't in the history texts. Would you reveal to war-weary populations that some 80 Napoleons might still be alive? funny thing to be afraid of, eh, Robert? 80 Napoleons. I think we've got more of more than 80 Napoleons running around in the world today. How many countries are there? I don't know. <laughs> but apparently all this happened in 1993, yes. according to Star Trek. I must have missed it somewhere. I was sleeping that decade. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where 519-661-3600 is a number to call. You know, I was listening to that clip just from Star Trek, and it seemed to epitomize a lot of the fear of of the general field of eugenics, let's say. And I noticed that the fear there was not so much of eugenics, although that's what they emphasized incorrectly, I thought, but of dictatorship. Yes. That's the thing that we have to fear. And then he says, you know, uh, superior ability comes with, uh, or superior ambition, rather, comes with superior and, uh, ability. Well, I wish that were true, because most dictators and fuhrers that I know of were most definitely not superior in any way. In fact, one could go and easily prove how inferior they were in so many ways. Inferior people are the type of people who resort to force to get what they need. That's what makes them inferior. 
that's the definition of inferior. You know, conversely to that, a lot of uh, people who have uh, extremely high IQs, according to Mensa, mm-hmm. hold down menial jobs. Yes. Does that make them, quote, inferior? They're no. not demagogues. No, not in any way. <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, we, got, we, we were talking about the whole issue of definitions. I, didn't, I, didn't, I did not go to Wikipedia right away. Like you said, you go, first, you go there first and then you use it as a broad you know, place to look. Yeah, I, think I generally was, yeah. go there last. I check my uh-huh. other... And I found a lot of things the same and, and some interesting differences. But I started off with um, usually just a dictionary definition, and then I went to the encyclopedia definition, and I got two completely different definitions of eugenics. Do tell. Now, the eugenics definition from my Funk and Wagnalls was, quote, the science of improving the physical and mental qualities of human beings through control of the factors influencing heredity. That's a pretty good definition. I would agree with it, yeah. Yes, in terms of the science. Yes. Now, when I went to the encyclopedia definition, it wasn't the science definition, although it referred to science, of course. It was completely a political definition. Mm. And it refers to eugenics, uh, pointing out it comes from the, Gre- the Greek eugenies, which is, means well-born. And it talks about the history, you know, Francis Galton, etc., etc., who defined eugenics as, quote, the study of agencies under social control which may improve or impair the racial qualities of future generations, either physically or mentally. So, you know, social control is usually a euphemism for state control. Yes. And um, it says that eugenics must determine the relationships between such factors as the occupations and the economic standards of parents and their influence upon the inherited qualities of children, as if that has anything to do with anything. It must also establish what influence other elements of environment, such as climate... (laughs) Oh, now I, now I know why, why all those socialists are greenies, too. Food and social conditions have on men's characters. On their characters, Robert. Not on their physical makeup. On their character. On whether they're honest or not. Whether they're good or not. Whether they'll steal from you or not, right? This is what people are believing. And this is so nonsensical. Now, was that a historical definition? Because that's just, I don't know whether it's historical, but that was a definition in the 1950s in my uh, Universal World Reference Encyclopedia. Also says the purpose of eugenics is to, quote, prevent the breeding of defective persons and to induce persons of healthy and intelligent stock to have families. So there's your positive and negative, right? In order to accomplish these ends, advocates of eugenics want to have legislation passed, legislation passed, there's that bad word again, to prevent the marriage of defective persons. Well, that's, that's not medicine as such, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, hence, in many places, there's been an act of agitation to change marriage laws and to sterilize defectives. Boy, have we come a long way with gay marriage now, eh? Mm-hmm. Considering what a different attitude society has today. And, of course, they talk about racial, there's a heading, racial degeneration. And it says, racial improvement is the definite goal of eugenics. Um, right on the face of it, I don't know how you can even make a statement. What, what constitutes an improvement? You know, it has to be very subjective, I guess. Well, it would have to be very, very subjective. How do you know that when you think you're taking out a bad trait, that it's not a good trait? Do you remember that really weird and dumb episode <laughs> of um, Star Trek, the early one, where Captain Kirk gets split into two? 
Oh, yes. And, and they find, and they discover throughout that that he cannot survive without his, quote, evil half. Yes. Without his evil, quote, nature, his, his aggressive nature. Because when combined with his good nature, you can't separate the two and you can't just pick and choose, oh, I think I'll make him good and I'll make him evil. I think that was one of the points they tried to make in that show. And they also made another fascinating point in that show. I don't know if you remember all of this, but not only Captain Kirk was split in two, a little doggy was split in two, too, this little oh, yes. puppy or something, remember? The ones that they stuck the horns on. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> put silly. in the box, yeah, I remember. But interestingly enough, when they tried to put them back together, the dog died. Because uh, his mind couldn't take because it. Because his mind couldn't take it. He, there was something inherently different between the animal and the human. And that was a statement being That's made. What I loved about Star Trek, yeah. they talked about things like that. Always did, and they always made it in a symbolic way, and and and, and made the message, you know, inherent in the story. So, uh, you know, how can you say that something is an improvement if you're not even sure what role, for example, aggression plays? If you don't like aggression, you might say, well, I don't want to see an aggressive nation. Well, what if it became t- suddenly passive? Pretty sure you'd die out pretty quickly. Yeah, any you know? evolutionary biologist will tell you that's what we consider today to be necessarily a bad trait may fit a certain niche in the future. Right. And it says, um, you know, some of the major causes of racial deterioration, according to advocates of eugenics, are the marriage of defectives, the influence of poverty of all things, which is <laughs> a socialist outcome, mm-hmm. uh, crime, disease, drunkenness, my goodness, unsanitary living and working conditions, and similar social conditions. None of this has to do with medicine or with, with literal, you know, f- the physical makeup of human beings. And then it says the abolishment of these practices and circumstances are the immediate aim of eugenics. Also the aim of socialists. They're trying to get rid of poverty and crime and disease by giving their thief the money instead of making them steal it. They'll steal it for them, you know. And then, of course, uh, they, apparently there are educate, eugenics education centers in England. There was a chair of eugenics at University College London. Uh, Sweden had a Swedish state institute, race biology, until uh, geez, till very, till very recently, started in 1922. But, you know, I look at all these definitions, and if uh, may I use the word defectives for these seemingly scientific approaches to human behavior? <laughs> um, as far as the definitions goes, it sounds like the inventors of social eugenics uh, need to be sterilized or something. <laughs> at least their definitions and ideas are defective. And... Um, I think that means unscientific, really. Take a quick break now. When we come back, we want to talk about the philosophy behind the whole concept of eugenics and, and I guess, of related sciences that try to um, predetermine our future in a positive or negative way, which I think is a silly attempt. And we're going to, once again, rely on some of the interesting thoughts of John McMurray when we return after this. Captain... I've examined the brig. The force field door on the security cell is damaged, and the guards have vanished. I must assume they are dead. You killed two of my... Creator, your biological units are inefficient. No man, it's about time I told you who and what you are. I'm a biological unit, and I created you. Non-sequitur, biological units are inherently inferior. This is an inconsistency. There is much to be considered before I return to launch point. I must re-evaluate. Re-evaluate? I suspect it is about to re-evaluate its creator. Captain, it may have been unwise to admit to Nomad that you are a biological unit. 
in Nomad's eyes, you must now undoubtedly appear imperfect. It was a foolish mistake. Even worse, Nomad just now made a reference to its launch point, Earth. Spock, do you think it's possible that it got a fix on Earth when it tapped the computers earlier? I do not believe there is much beyond Nomad's capabilities. And we've shown it the way home. And when it gets there... It will find the Earth infested with imperfect biological units. And it will carry out its prime directive. Sterilize. was saying how great it would be if you could make a cat as big as a dog you know have like a house cat and make it as big as like a you know a, a golden retriever or something because then it would be like a tame jungle cat running around your house you know and I said that's cool up to a point but you know how when you're petting a cat and uh, it's fine for a while and then the cat is done with you petting him and he turns around and bites you on the hand or whatever. Now the cat's head is this big. Right? Here's what you do instead. You take big animals and you shrink them down so we can have them. I vote for the bear. Yeah. Let's make him tiny. To have a little bear, make him small. Not really small, not too small, not like pocket size or whatever. So you came around and be a jerk, like, hey, you want to see my bear? But just, you know, small. Like about this big. This big, imagine it. How adorable that would be. A little bear like that, running around your house. Let's say he tries to bite you, how much is it going to hurt? He's just a house bear. <laughs> That one makes me laugh a little, too, I gotta admit. It's, it's funny. It's funny to think of it. Don't applause for my vanity. Thank you. As, as he sees it as vanity, eh? huh. doing something like that, because that's part of the whole issue of this, even with regard to your own kids. I wouldn't mind having a little teddy bear running around the house as long as I declawed it first. <laughs> I bet you that's a major consideration for cloning. Well, I don't oh, how know. vain. Yes. Now... We were talking about, uh, of course, we're talking about the whole issue of eugenics and um, the belief that you can control human behavior in these ways. Well, you know, this, this kind of thinking is nothing new, obviously. Uh, Fifty years ago, 1960s, uh, the Scottish philosopher John McMurray addressed this directly. In, a, in, in of all essays, you know, you'd never think it would be found in an essay titled this, but it was just called Mother and Child. And it's in his book, Persons in Relation, published in 1961. And he brings a fascinating point of view about, literally, how we came to talk about this whole issue in these terms. He says it's all philosophic. It comes from our past. We're not even speaking in the right terms when we talk about the human condition, about human behavior versus nature. And here's what he has to say. And I'm quoting a lot here, but I'm going to intersperse and not really say when I'm quoting and not. But he says, there's a widespread belief of which Aristotle is probably the original source, that the human infant is an animal organism which becomes rational and acquires a human personality in the process of growing up. In Aristotle's terminology, the baby is potentially, but not 
actually rational. Now, of course, remember McMurray, uh, he's, he's an Aristotelian. He's not dismissing Aristotle. He's just saying, just like Newton, who, who got stuck with this too, with, his, uh, with determinism over his, his concepts of, you know, the laws of causality as discovered in the universe, people started applying this to, to human behavior as though it could be done the same way, but it cannot. And writes McMurray that this Aristotelian theory interests us only because of the influence it has and still has upon our customary ways of thinking. If the notion that children are little animals who acquire the characteristics of rational humanity through education, if this notion seems to us simple common sense and matter of everyday observation, it is because we share the traditional outlook and attitude of a culture which has been molded by Greek and in particular by Aristotelian ideas. Indeed, the word um, eugenics is a Greek word, right? So, so much of common sense is a relic of past philosophies, he writes. But whatever its origin, this view is radically false. The root of the error is the attempt to understand the field of the personal on a biological analogy. And so, through organic categories. In fact, that very definition came up two or three times. They were liter literally using the word analogy. Analogy, you know, we're using this analogy. Well, that comes from the Greek and from Aristotle, not from medicine. It's a completely philosophic construct and an incorrect one. The Greek mode of thought, he says, was naturally biological or what we call zoomorphic. The Greek tradition has strongly been reinforced by the organic philosophies of the 19th century, again, Newton and, and, and medicine and everything, and the consequent development of evolutionary biology. This, in turn, led to the attempt to create evolutionary sciences in the human field, particularly in its social aspect, which is exactly what we're talking about. Remember, this was written half a century ago. The general result of these converged cultural activities, the romantic movement, the organic philosophies, idealist or realist, and evolutionary science, was that contemporary thought about human behavior, individual and social, became saturated with biological metaphors and molded itself to the requirements of an organic analogy. It became common to say, to talk of ourselves as organisms and of our societies as organic structures, to refer to the history of society as an evolutionary process. We've done this ourselves, haven't we? Yes. We're wrong. <laughs> uh, and to account for all human action as an adaptation to the environment. You following this? That's ex isn't that exactly how they're thinking? It was assumed, and still is assumed in many quarters, that this way of conceiving human life is scientific and empirical and therefore is the truth about us. It is, in fact, not empirical. It is a priori and analogical. Consequently, it is not, in a strict sense, even scientific. For this concept and the categories of understanding which go with it were not discovered by a patient, unbiased examination of facts of human activity. They were discovered at best through an empirical and scientific study of facts of plant and animal life. It's exactly what, um, you know, Nathaniel Brandon says, he says, one of the foremost characters of the majority of modern psychological and scientific theories, aside from the arbitrariness of their claims, is their ponderous irrelevance and that the fact that they actually believe this stuff, you know, that, uh, you know, they're not studying man, they're studying animals and organisms, and it's a different type of thing entirely. They were applied by analogy to the human field on the a priori assumption that human life must exhibit the same structure. The practical consequences are in the end disastrous, but they do reveal er the erroneous character of the assumption. 
To affirm the organic conception in the personal field is implicitly to deny the possibility of action. Yet the meaning of the conception lies in reference to action. In other words, if you believe that everything you do can be programmed, then you, then you haven't got the power to act. You're not, a free in, you're not a free agent. It's been decided for you. And this is, what, this is what people, I think, really fear about the whole concept. We say, in effect, society is organic. Therefore, let us make it organic, as it ought to be. The contradiction is glaring. If society is organic, then it's meaningless to say that it ought to be. For if it ought to be, then it is not. <laughs> right? The organic conception of the human as a practical idea is what we now call the totalitarian state. Wow, what a jump, eh? It rests on the practical contradiction which, which corresponds to the theoretical one. Man is not free, it runs, therefore he ought not to be free. If organic theory overlooks human freedom, organic practice must suppress it. We are not organisms, says McMurray, but persons. The nexus of relations which unites us in a human society is not organic, but personal. And human behavior cannot be understood, but only caricatured, if it is represented as an adaptation to the environment. And there is no such process as social evolution, no such thing. But instead, what we have is a history, it's called history, which reveals a precarious development and possibilities of both progress and retrogression. We don't always evolve. We're going backwards right now as we speak. Yes, we are. You see? So are we, are we evolving? No, we're devolving right now. So human behavior is not subject to the laws of evolution. It doesn't work that way. It is true, as we have already argued, he says, the personal necessarily includes the organic, but that's irrelevant. But it cannot be defined in terms of its own negative. And this organic aspect is continuously qualified by its inclusion so that it cannot even be properly abstracted, except through a prior understanding of the personal structure in which it's essential. A descent from the personal is also possible in theory and indeed in practice, but there is no way for thought to ascend from the organic to the personal. The organic conception of man excludes by its very nature all the characters and virtue of which we are human beings. Now, it's at this point in McMurray's essay he begins to describe the relationship of a mother to child. He clearly distinguishes between instinct and purposeful human behavior, and he comments, for to talk of the infant's behavior as an adaptation to environment ought to mean that it responds to external stimuli in a way that is biologically effective. Yet it is precisely his inability to do this that is the governing factor. From all this, it follows that the baby is not an animal organism, this is when we got into that debate over animal and, and uh, what was the opposite, you know, or, or, or organic or human, right? But a person, or in traditional terms, a rational being. The reason is that his life and even his bodily survival depends upon intentional activity and therefore upon knowledge, which is the whole field of epistemology, isn't it? Yes. That the human infant cannot act intentionally, that he cannot even think for himself and has no knowledge by which to, to live is true and is of the first importance. It does not signify, however, that he's merely an animal organism. If it did, it would mean that he could live by the satisfaction of organic impulse, by reaction to stimulus, by instinctive adaption to his natural environment. But we know this is totally untrue, and yet science continues on blithely as though none of this existed. He cannot live at all by any initiative, whether personal or organic, of his own. He can only live through other people and in dynamic relation with them. In virtue of this fact, he is a person 
for the personal is constituted by a relation of persons. The human infant, then, is a person from birth. His survival depends upon reason, that is to say, upon action, and not upon reaction to stimulus. What do you think of that? I think that the people who would disagree with that um, were responsible for the Soviet Union because Marx's materialism was uh, exactly, exactly opposed to uh, uh, what McGregor is saying here. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people might be of a religious persuasion and agree with this, but maybe for the wrong reasons. For different reasons, for, for different sure. Reasons, yes. But still, um, that's the point, that, that, that human beings are separate from animals, and to try and treat them as an organism is incorrect. And, and it, it tends to bring into focus a bit of the, the abortion debate, too, because whether you agree or not, there's certainly another distinction between birth and before birth. Before birth, that child is an organism. It is completely dependent on its stimulus. It's, it's, it's like living in a pit, petri cell, you know, in, in a dish, you know, except being the mother's womb, or as you say, in a, in a glass encased, if you're talking about test tube babies. It's the same principle, but in that environment, it is an organism. It's not until it comes out of that environment that it becomes a human being because it depends upon others to survive. It is parasitic in utero. If you want to look at it that way. But parasites <laughs> generally mean a different species. It's not a different species. No, no, its and relationship is parasitic. It's, it's relationship is, yes. But, it, but again, it's self. Um, it, doesn't have to, it doesn't have to take action. It doesn't have a self. While, while, yes, there is no self yet. Yeah. And so, you know, I'll leave that with you. We're out of time today, but that's just about all we could cover on this. Generally, I think there's two ways of looking at eugenics in general. There's a scientific, which can be good or bad or evil or good or whatever you want to call it, depending on what you're doing with it. And there's a political, which is almost always, always wrong. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we'll leave you with today. And I guess we have to leave for another week. Get out of here before we run out of time. And make sure you do what you always do. Be right, act right, do right, and be right back here next week. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Recently, uh, a friend and I were talking about genetic engineering. And no, we weren't high.